0: Amen. So as I was praying no doubt, you know, your there were memories going through your mind as you were thinking about maybe your childhood or your father experience or whatever comes to your mind and uh, I can I could not possibly think of a better text for me personally, although it won't apply to many of you in the room, but some it will. For me personally to preach on on Father's Day. Because this literally is my Father's Day text. Because as you know, I grew up without a father. An earthly father. But I found fatherhood when the father found me. And I learned to be a father in the family of faith. By watching some of you in this room and I'm just so very thankful and so very grateful. See, the thing about it is that memory is such a precious gift because think about what memory does. It, it transforms the discrete moments of our lives into an unfolding narrative. See, our lives tell a story. You're, you're all, We're all on a journey and our lives tell a story, but that story doesn't exist if there's not memories if you don't remember. So you think about how the Bible constantly is telling us to remember. For example, in Exodus 12, the Lord says, this day shall be for you a memorial day and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Now that text in Exodus 12, it, when, I, when I read that, here's what I, I'm, I'm reminded of. Not just God's Placing importance on remembering, but how in remembering, it's not a memorial that people would see, it's a memorial that people would do. See, he's calling them to remember by celebrating a feast. Remember by doing. That's very important to think about. See, because memory. It's the link between the past and the future, between time and eternity, between now and what's to come. Memory links all this together and it gives us context. And then it allows us to relive the story of our past as we are revived in the story of our present and as we so many times are looking forward to the story that's ahead. So what we do for God flows out of what he has done to us. And so if we're not, if we don't remember what he's done to us, then there's going to be a disconnect. So as we just sang so beautifully, let's get our listening guides out. The purpose of remembering is, gratitude leading to service. You see, because again, what we do for God flows out of what he has done to us. And so oftentimes when people have a connection problem, what it's illustrating is that they really have a remembering problem because one will lead to the other. All right, so let's look at Ephesians 2, let's go back and revisit the, the, this glorious verse 10 from last week. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That was last week. That's this mountaintop, Mount Everest truth. We're his poema. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. Think about this. Which he prepared beforehand. Think now. He's not preparing them as we go. And what does that tell you? He's not preparing them based on in response to what you do. You ever thought about that? They're already prepared. Prepared. Now, of course, God already knows, but that is a powerful thing because we so oftentimes will live in the self-inflicted condemnation of the good works that God might call us to do are predicated on the things that were done in our past. Or maybe even they, they are reduced by the things in our present when God prepared them beforehand. See, so what God calls us to do is not limited by anything that we've done. Hey man. That's encouraging. So that is this unbelievable truth. Now look at verse 11. Therefore, so whatever is about to follow because here's this Mount Everest reality. Therefore, so in light of this, here's now the what's going to implications that are going to flow out of that. So you're expecting this just hmm, remember? That's that big of a deal that we're going to go from we're his poema created in Christ Jesus for good works, therefore, remember. Remember. Remember why? Not so that you become guilty about your past but to remember how awful our former life was in comparison to all that God's given us now that we remember our sinful past so that it might produce beautiful things in us like humility because when we think about our beautiful past see what were we just told before Ephesians 2:10 we were told that we were saved By grace, through faith, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Right? So we can't boast in it because we didn't do it. And so therefore, all that's happened to us, it creates humility in us. Because here we are in a place we never dreamed we could be, but yet we didn't do it. We remember that. Why? Because we all have a tendency in our flesh to want to drift towards self-delusion and convincing ourselves that maybe somehow some way part of the reason why we're in the in a good place today is because of our hard work and our effort and our diligence and our and it's not that it should make us humble not prideful now notice he's talking to this tension between the gentiles and the Jews and What's interesting is that you've got, it's almost like a Dr. Seuss story where you've got the circumcised and the uncircumcised, and if you want a full conversation about that over lunch at Father's Day, Dad can explain it. It should be amazing. But that's not for here now, and I'll never get through this sermon if I get off on that topic, so, but it's the haves and the have-nots, or the have-nots and the haves, depending on how you look at it. Uh, Lord help us. But here's what's interesting. God, in the very beginning, he chose Abraham and the Jews and created a people, right? Well, Why? Not so that they were would be superior to other people. But from the very beginning, he said, so that you might be a blessing to all the peoples of the world. And yet what has happened? By the time we get to the New Testament, that's the furthest thing from the truth. And what they've done is they have convinced themselves that they're special and they're elite and they're better and they're because they have a relationship with God, because they were chosen by God, because they... In which, what did they do? Nothing. God did it. That's, that's the, the, the danger. And so much of the Old Testament is built around remembering, and they still failed. Still failed. And they're going through the motions of all the things they're supposed to remember, but they're not letting what they remember transform their heart and reinform their heart about all that God has done. And then in your Bible, you should underline the last three words, in the world. So he says, having no hope and without God, in the world. Now, what world was that? Well, what we've been talking about is that's the world where we were ignorant to the gospel. We were blind to the reality that God had created this true reality. And we believed that that world was real, which was just a world that was filled with mirrors, where the only way we knew who we were or what we were doing or how we were doing was to look in a reflection of ourselves and then compare ourselves to what we saw in other people. And that's just the whole way we based everything. Everything was based on that. But then God comes along and removes the mirror and there's a window and he flings open the window of the gospel and lets us peer out. In the last chapter, we've been able to see what's true what's actually true, what really does exist because of all that God has done and who that makes us. And so to be no hope and without God in the world, to be without God is to truly be without hope. They're hopeless. Without God, we were hopeless. Every person that we encounter apart from God is hopeless, There's no possible rational, logical scenario where anybody in their own strength and by their own willpower or effort or ability or any other thing can possibly dig themselves out of the hole that they're in. That's what the book of Ephesians has went to painstaking uh, limits to try to get us to see. Verse 13, but now, so again we have this but gospel, not and, but now, so no longer are we hopeless in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You see, we weren't just bought by the blood of Christ, but we were brought. Both are true. We weren't just purchased. It wasn't just the fact that his blood was shed to forgive our sin. But Paul is just reiterating the things that he's already made clear about how this process works. That it wasn't just that we were forgiven and reconciled, but that we were adopted and accepted. That there's, there's more to this story. See, when we were bought we were also brought. That's important to realize. Jesus, where did he bring us? Jesus brought us from foreigners to family. From foreigners to family. That's what he did. He took us out of this world when we collapsed in his arms when he climbed down all the way down to the bottom of the pit we were in remember last week and we collapsed in his arms God brings us near he he bought us and he brought us at the same time now look at this beginning in verse 14 here's our wonderful my father's day text for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of the the commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him... We both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on a foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. You got that? Should we just have an invitation? Go home. Come on now. I knew at the end of that text right there, nobody's blowing the party blower. Because you're like, I want to. I mean, it's good, amen, but what does that mean? That's a lot of words. And it's kind of jumbly sounding, isn't it? And I don't even know exactly what's Paul talking about here. How is this a Father's Day text for you, Tony? Are you nuts? Well, no, I'm not. Well, yes, I'm nuts, but that's not in this situation. Okay, where is Paul? Let's back up. Where is Paul? as God is using him to write this letter to the church at Ephesus, he's in prison, right? And he's, he is like in legit prison waiting a death sentence. He's in jeopardy. What is the charge? Why is he in prison? What is the charge? Well, in a general sense, he's in prison because he can't quit telling people about Jesus. In a general sense, he's in prison because, well, the Romans are infuriated with him because he keeps causing a bunch of uproars and chaos everywhere he goes. And because he said that no man can be God, which is offensive to Caesar, which that infuriates the Romans and is, you know, punishable by death. Then you got the Jews, they're totally upset with him because he's totally up flipping around their power structure. They believe that he's diluting the purity of their heritage. Why? Because he keeps inviting outsiders in. Not only that, he keeps talking about this Jesus as being the Messiah. So he's just he's really causing problems for all the major players in society. And so he's in a dungeon... Possibly waiting to be beheaded. But what specifically is the charge? Because when, listen, when the Spirit of God works through a human being to pen Scripture, one of the things that you know is true if you read the Bible is that The words that come through the human vessel are shaped by the memories, the remembering that that vessel has, by the experiences. So so God, here's what we could say, God was working in the experiences of Paul in accordance with how he was gonna use that when Paul would be the instrument through which he wrote Scripture, right? Just like me and you. We don't write Scripture, but here's what happens. God uses our remembering, our story, our past, is woven into how God works in our lives, in the present situation. And it has to do a lot of times with how God uses us moving forward. It's in the way that we relate to things, in the way that we see things. Those things are all woven by God together, right? Okay. Go to Acts 21, page 1031 in that pew Bible. Let's look at this exactly what's going on. What is Paul remembering? What's going on? So when you get to Acts 21, okay, Paul has just left Ephesus. Hmm. Imagine that. He heads back to Jerusalem. Now remember, the Jews are furious with Paul. He goes back to Jerusalem. They're furious with him because they're not buying this Jesus is God thing, and they're definitely not buying this inclusive non-Jews are welcome deal. That's, they're furious. He goes back to Jerusalem, leaves Ephesus. You ready? Acts 21, look at verse 27. When the seven days were almost completed... The Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. This is Paul crying out, men of Israel. See, who's writing this? Luke, right? They cry out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought he even brought greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place for they had previously seen trophimus the ephesian with paul in the city and they supposed that paul had brought him into the temple verse 30 then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together they seized paul and dragged him out of the temple and at once the gates were shut and as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune, the Roman guard of the cohort, cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. So here's what happens. Paul is at the temple, which understands something, is the most segregated place on earth. It is the most racially, culturally divided place on the planet. See, in the center of the temple, you have the Holy of Holies, which is where the Jews believed that God resided, where no one could go except the high priest, and he could only go one day a year. No one could go there. That was God's dwelling place. No one was welcome there. Then when you... Move out from that center room. You have the court of priests. Only the priests could enter that area. Then as you move out again. Each subsequent area getting larger and larger. The small holy of holies. Then this next place. The court of priests. Then outside that wall would have been the court of Israel. Where only Jewish men would have been allowed in that court. Now, there's thousands of people there. you got the Holy of Holy. You've got the priest, the court of priests. Then you have the next wall separating out, the court of Israel. Then outside that wall would have been the court of women. Only Jewish women were allowed in that area. Then outside that area, there's a dividing wall. About four and a half feet tall. All the way around the temple area. That was called the wall of Gentiles. It was the outermost wall. This was the, the wall behind which outsiders could come and see the temple at a distance. That's as far as you could go. You weren't allowed to go any closer. So there's thousands of people and someone starts screaming. Screaming. He's brought a Gentile into the restricted area, and a mob scene erupts. Now, see, on this outer wall, which is not really a a mystery to us because way back in 1871, archaeologists dug this up. So we've, we see the wall and we've seen the plaques on the wall. We know exactly what they said. And there were plaques all the way around this wall every so often. And they read on those plaques, any non-Jew that dare to pass through this wall will be held accountable for his life this day. See, that wasn't trespassers will be persecuted. That's or prosecuted, that's trespassers, will be executed. I mean, that's how this worked. It was a death sentence to cross this wall. So they had seen Paul earlier because they hate him, and they watch him. When he came into Jerusalem, he was walking around the city with Trophimus with him, who was from Ephesus. And they're like, look at him with that Gentile. Well, when they see him in the temple, they just assume that Trophimus is still with him. Now, is Trophimus with him? No. But it doesn't matter. They see Paul and they just start screaming that he's brought him into the restricted area. And a mob breaks out and they start beating him. In church. I mean, it's like a church potluck when you run out of food. People go So, They're beating him in the temple because of what he supposedly did. When and Trophimus isn't even there, but it doesn't matter. It just, everything erupts into chaos. Well, now, wherever there's a temple, and especially this is the temple in Jerusalem, the Romans, they're very... I mean, you know, the Romans were, were sharp. They were wise. They built towers next to every Jewish temple. Why? So that the guards could look down and see exactly what was going on in the temple. Because the Romans were going to make sure that nothing went on that they didn't have a handle on. So what happened? Whenever chaos erupted, word gets back to the Roman guard that everything's going crazy. So they come down and intervene. Because they're not going to let anarchy out. they're going to keep people in line no matter what's going on so they come down to break it up they grab paul they start dragging him away to quiet the chaos to get things back in control as they're dragging paul away paul speaks to you can read this when you get home if you keep keep reading the narrative in acts you can see this as they're dragging paul away paul speaks to the roman guard in greek and he immediately stops and turns around because he knows this is an educated man. He, he knows Greek. So this isn't just some terrorist or thug. So then Paul requests to speak to the crowd. Now they're dragging him up these stairs to take him off and beat him and he speaks to him and they stop and let go of him and he says i want to speak to the crowd and so they let him address the crowd and then you'll see recorded in scripture like 20 verses of paul's address to the crowd and as he stands on the stairs now imagine the imagine the roman guards they think this is just some terrorist he speaks to him in greek now he stands up on the stairs and he addresses the Jewish crowd in Hebrew. And he says to the crowd essentially, he takes them on a journey. He says, You know, I used to kill Christians, I used to be like you, but one day I was blinded by a light, and that light spoke to me and told me to be his witness. And Jesus called me to go into the world and to represent him as the one and only true God. Now imagine this scene. Now skip down to Acts 22. Acts 22, we'll pick it up in verse 19. There's a lot going on here. Acts 22, verse 19. And I said, Lord... They themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I, this is Paul's addressing the crowd, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And Jesus said to me, now think about this, in light of... What he's remembering about his past. Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Listen, if you are are a person who struggles with constantly self-condemning yourself and you can't seem to overcome your past, you should just get a giant highlighter and just make a huge circle around verse 21. Do you realize what just happened? There's no one in this room whose past can even come even remotely close to what Paul just said is true about himself. And God's response is not, yes, I know that was horrible, that was bad. His immediate response is, hey, I'm using you, let's go, get busy. Verse 22, up to this word they listened to him. But then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. What changed? See, for 20 verses, they've listened to everything he said. What made them freak out and say, you must die? Verse 21. When he said that God told him, to go to the Gentiles, you crossed the line, buddy. You went too far. You got to die. Verse 23, and as they shouted and were throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging. They're trying to calm this crowd down to find out why they were shouting against him like this. The Romans are like, what is wrong with these people? They don't get all this. So they take Paul into the barracks. They strip him down. They're about to whip him. And just as a centurion is standing over him, about to light him up, again, Paul always has the right words at the right time. I wonder where he gets that. Just as he's standing over him, Paul says, Hmm, are you going to whip a Roman citizen who hasn't had a trial yet? And the guard drops the whip. Because he knew how close he just came to death. Because if you whip a Roman citizen who hasn't had a Roman trial, you die. Period. So he drops that whip. So what are they going to do? They got to do something. So they pack him up. They can't beat him. They can't whip him. They got, but they got to get him out of here because he is an absolute menace to society. So they pack him up. And what do they do? They put his clothes on him. And they ship him off to jail. Which is where Paul is when he's writing Ephesians. Okay? You with me now? Now you know the charge. Now you know the the history. You know what's happened. Now let's read this again with new eyes. Go back to Ephesians 2. Let's look at our text. And what was once cloudy and confusing is now going to make perfect sense. Ephesians 2 verse 14. For he himself is our peace who has made us both, that's Jew and Gentiles, one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Well, you know what that is, don't you? Yes. You just read it. Jesus broke down the barrier wall. Jesus changed things. He breaks down all kinds of walls. Jesus shows up and he breaks down the the walls and offers a drink to a Samaritan woman. He breaks down the walls and goes to the house of a Roman officer whose child is sick. Jesus breaks down the barriers. He he touches those who are deemed ceremonially unclean and heals them. Jesus crosses every barrier. When he shows up on the scene, he crosses all the cultural barriers. He defies all of the racial tensions. Jesus is always jumping over and breaking down walls. To seek and save sinners, isn't he? Yes, he is. To draw near those who are far off, who are separated. Who are still in the confines of this world. Look at verse 15. How did he do this? By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself One new man in place of the two, so making peace. Now look, circle the word ordinances in your Bible. Let's just just clarify something real quick. Some of you might get confused about this from time to time. What law did Jesus come to abolish? See, sometimes there are people who are ignorant and who are in a position of teaching that aren't prepared to do so and they'll say you see the old jesus abolished the old testament law it says it right there is that what that says well first of all there's many laws in the old testament primarily there's the moral law and there's the ceremonial law The moral law, meaning the Ten Commandments and the commandments of God, and the the ceremonial law, which is all the the ways that you cleanse yourself and approach God and all of those things, the sacrificial law, right? Well, he can't be referring to the moral law. Why? Well, because in in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law but to fulfill it. Write down, Matthew 5, 17, right there in your Bible by that. So you know what that is. So Jesus comes, he says, to draw out the inherent goodness of the law. Not to abolish it, to expand it, to deepen it, to enlighten us to the fundamental reasons why the law is good. Because the law shows us our need for God. So then what did he abolish? He abolished the ceremonial law, which is why we don't sacrifice animals today. And anyone who does is a whack job. Just telling you. You got nuts running around and, 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 and you know, presenting themselves as teachers on YouTube and all kind of stuff. You better be careful. Careful. What's abolished is a ceremonial law, which is why we don't do that anymore, which is why we're not, we don't have all these weird things about eating stuff and, and this and that, and no, we don't do that. Why? Because it's been abolished. The sacrificial system, see all the ways that humans were to cleanse themselves so that they could approach God, gone. That's what's been abolished. Jesus put it to death. He made it irrelevant. It's unneeded. So we don't need that. His blood is enough once and for all. Isn't that what it says? But now notice, now look again. Now, he abolished the law expressed in ordinances. Not on tablets. Ordinances. That he might create in himself one new man In place of the two. Which is so important. In place of the two. What does that mean? That means that when God reaches outsiders, he doesn't make Gentiles Jews. He's not conforming one to the other. He takes the two and makes a new one. That's important to understand. New. That's why we're a new creation. So that means that when in Christ, there's no cultural distinction. There's no national distinction. There's no skin color distinction. There's no language distinction. There's no. No. We're family. and might reconcile us verse 16 both to God in one body through the cross therefore thereby killing the hostility so if you still have hostility in your heart something's bad wrong with you you're at odds with God and i'm about to show you you're the bible's about to show you you're not just at odds with God you're at odds with the Trinity personally. Personally. Watch what the Bible says. Verse 17, and he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Verse 18, for through him, that's Christ, we both have access in one, capital S, spirit, to who? Capital F, Father. You see that? So through Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who makes peace between human and human, and between human and God, in the Spirit, you see how the Trinity is here? God the Holy Spirit who carries us into the presence, to the Father, God the Father, who so loved the world that he sent his Son to make life with God possible. The whole trinity. So to reject this is to reject not just God, but to reject each component of the trinity, every member of the trinity, every facet of God. I would be mortified if I were sitting here this morning and I had racial problems in my heart. I would be terrified that I would die. Terrified. You do not want to stand before God with racial problems in your heart. I can promise you. You do not. You talk about trampling on the blood of Christ. Read these verses and think through what they're saying. But the beautiful side of it is not that that's the broken side. The beautiful side is, wait a minute, never again will we ever meet any signs that say restricted access. Oh. that we are fully adopted with complete access to dad. Happy Father's Day. You see? For us, for saved people, every day is Father's Day, isn't it? It is. It means a lot to Kid who grew up without a dad, let me tell you something. Yeah. It means a lot. Verse 19, so, that, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but your fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You see, a family built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Now He's sitting in jail because He spoke the truth to people who wanted to kill Him because they felt like He was defiling this temple. And notice these words flowing through the Holy Spirit, flowing through this vessel. When he says temple, underline the word temple in, in verse 21. Whenever you see the word temple in Scripture, it 99% of the time will be a very common word that just means holy building. It's, when you use that word, you mean it's the whole area where people go to worship God. Same thing whether it's a a, a a temple of God or a temple of false gods, there's just the one word temple, that's what it means. But not here. That's not the word the Holy Spirit uses here. Naos in the Greek translated into English temple. Do you know what that word means? That word means holy of holies. So he just said that we're built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus himself is the cornerstone in whom the whole structure That's all of us who were far brought near, being joined together, grow into the holy of holies. The holy of holies? What? The the people who thought that they were the insiders could never dream little jewish boys would grow up and they wouldn't they wouldn't idolize sports stars or people who had made a lot of money or movie stars or people who were born beautiful or any other thing you know what they would who they would look up to and dream about. Little Jewish boys would dream one day, just maybe, just maybe. If I was lucky enough to be born into the Levitical tribe, maybe I could be the high priest and just maybe I could get an opportunity to go into the presence of God which would be terrifying to, to no end, but at the same time exhilarating because of what was happening. Because if you survived, imagine the guy who went in and survived and came out alive. You think going to the moon is awesome. That would be their dream. And now... The Bible says, no, it, what God has done has, has taken us from strangers and aliens and knit us together and built us into the holy of holies, that we are the holy of holies. Look at verse 22, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Us, sinful, broken human beings, being redeemed, becoming new creations, joined together in a new family, in a new reality, realizing this new situation in which we find ourselves in. See, we do not just go to the Holy of Holies. We are the Holy of Holies. We are. That's what we are. That's what the church is that Jesus purchased with his own blood. I don't have time to go into this, but one implication that you need to consider is whenever you meet somebody or talk to somebody and they tell you that they're a Christian and that they love Jesus, but that they're not into organized religion or they don't participate in a church. You know, there's a lot of statistics that I could give you that illustrate the stupidity of our culture. And I mean, just a couple days ago, I'm sure many of you saw this, uh, there was a big hubbub online because, you know, all the smartest people in the world, if if you want to know who they are, you watch Jeopardy! They're on Jeopardy. They're not us who are yelling at the screen. They're actually the ones who win at it. And the question on Jeopardy last week was, you know, our Father who art in heaven, blank be thy name. And guess what all three people did? Crickets. Crickets. They're just standing there. They had no idea. They didn't even have a guess. Watch it online. They couldn't even guess. They had no idea. Finally, it timed out, bop, bop, and then it comes up, hallowed. They didn't go, oh, what? They were like, I've never heard that before in my life. That's not shocking to me. This is far more shocking to me. 81% of Americans asked the question, can you be a devoted follower of Jesus and not be devoted to a church? 81% of Americans said yes. That is a million times more absurd than anything else I could possibly say to you right now. It's the truth. Look at what the text says. That the Spirit of God broke down all the dividing walls, adopted us into a family so that He could knit us together with Christ as the chief cornerstone. You're saying I'm not interested in being a part of the building that Christ is the chief cornerstone of. That is impossible. It's impossible. I don't care what anybody says. It is impossible. It's impossible. But I think there are other implications of all of this. Us being the holy of holies. First implication would simply be this, and then we'll be done. Well, if we're being built together as this new family and this new creation, as the people of God being built into this holy of holies, then we invite the city around us to join the building project. We invite everyone we can to get in on what God is building in our midst. See, if God broke down all the dividing walls to bring who were far off near then anything we do that's not bringing far-off people near is wrong. If we just build a wall around us and say, hey, we got it. To hell with everybody else. We ain't got it. Don't have it. You missed it. Because that's the second implication, which is we got to make really sure that we do not in any way, shape, or form create any new dividing walls. Because Christ died to destroy them. And you know those dividing walls that, that Christ destroyed? The actual ones that Paul is referring to were built By the hands of people who thought they were serving God. Most all of whom are in hell today. See, Jesus' work on the cross crumbled all barriers. So we got to be really careful that we're not attempting to reconstruct them in any way. See, not only do we live to do what he is doing. That's our purpose here. But we live not to undo what he has done. You got that? It can't be more clear. So we'll say it this way. Jesus not only puts to death the wrath of God against people. He puts to death the wrath of people against people. You see, who we are, we can't be what we are in Christ and dishonor Who Christ is in the Bible. Did you hear what I just said? I'm, I promise you, some of you in here, I love you. And I understand that I will give account. I'll give account for your soul, whether good or bad. And so let's make sure right now there's no blood on my hands. You better understand what God is saying. You cannot be who he created you to be in him and at the same time dishonor who he is In the Bible. I do not care. What. Human works you're trying to hang your hat on. I don't care about your story. I don't care about the card you filled out. I don't care about your baptism. I don't care about your church membership. I don't care about any of that. I promise you. I promise you. You cannot, under any circumstances, in any way, shape, or form, be who God created you to be and dishonor who he is in the Bible. But you know what you can do? You can repent today. That's what you can do. Praise God. Let's stand. Father, we're humbled by your word because it's your word. And what we've seen this morning is the power of your word to break down our flesh, to storm in right into our hearts and remind us of things that we Give lip service to. But that we have not. Honored. And so God help us this morning. To see you in light of who you are. We'll never ever ever. Find our identity in you until we know who you actually are. And you're not who we want you to be. You are infinitely better than that. And so we are your family, Lord, with full access to our dad. So God, just as you took a murderous, hate-filled enemy, And you called him into your service. May the gratitude that's formed in our heart. By the remembering of all that you've done on our behalf. Draw us in humility into your service. Thank you for the gift of repentance. We give you praise today. In Jesus name. Amen. The altar is open. I want to invite you to come. If you need salvation, if you need to get baptized, if you need prayer, I'm here. The other pastors are here. Just you come.